0: I'm Katie Rich, the Deputy Editor of VanityFair.com, and we have our full crew again today. Welcoming back after a hiatus, our Digital Director, Mike Hogan. Hey, Katie. And we have our chief critic Richard Lawson. Hello. And our senior writer Joanna Robinson. Hi, Katie. Uh, we continue to be in the season that is not festival season, but festival announcement season. Uh, since we recorded last week and talked about the Toronto lineup, the Venice Film Festival has announced their lineup, and the New York Film Festival is starting to roll out some titles too. So we're going to get a sense of what's to come there. Uh, Joanna, is I, you're freshly returned from TCA, right? You're not still in a Los Angeles ballroom. <laughs> I am.
3: I'm- broken free from the ballroom. I am home.
0: Uh, So, Yeah, so Joanna's gotten a big look at what's to come in uh, television ahead, so she's going to catch us up on that. And then, finally, we're going to swing back around to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the Quentin Tarantino movie that uh, we've been talking about on and off since Cannes, and we have all finally seen, which is very exciting. But first of all, let's talk about the Venice lineup. Um, Richard, you'll be going to Venice this year for the first time for us, which uh, I'm excited to see you on a gondola uh, like Lady Gaga last year, just posed on the bow. (laughs) What, from the Venice lineup caught your attention.
1: Well, yeah, I'm really excited to go. Um, I studied Italian in high school and college, which was incredibly impractical until now. <laughs> 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 I have a professional use for it. Um, really no, playing I, the
0: long game there.
1: I think the big narrative for me right now coming out of Venice, and really, you know, kind of cynically speaking from like, like a work perspective is like, it's going to be great to have a first review of The Joker out. You know, the, the Joaquin Phoenix <laughs> movie. Yeah. Um, that, that trailer, you know, because like there are going to be American journalists at Venice, but there aren't going to be that many. Yeah. And so just kind of like get a leg up on that. I guess, sh- you know, we were talking about it. I think last week, like I, I love the idea of um, a bunch of like snooty film festival critics
2: weighing in on the superhero thing first yeah. or the supervillain <laughs> thing first and not, you know. Are they going to ship like a plane load of sort of geek writers out there or something they, oh, they, they might. should you or they'll do know. a concurrent
1: screening maybe like right. but I'm sure that like in order to get into the festival they have to kind of be like it has to be somewhat exclusive Yeah, you know um yep. so I don't know and I you know I think that like Joaquin Phoenix clearly like it's weird in a way that he doesn't have an Oscar yet so I feel like that's an interesting narrative for a movie about you know a comic book character though it seems to be a very different take on it the one thing this giving, is a sequel to the master right I mean, it,
2: <laughs> essentially, <laughs> I think it is. Um, He's drinking gasoline throughout. Um, the continued yeah, adventures yeah, yeah. of,
1: um, but you know, the, it, the fact that it's director Todd Phillips, who people mostly know as a comedy director, he did The Hangover, he did Road Trip, um, that is the one thing where you're like, well, maybe this isn't actually going to be the thing. But then we, we said that about Adam McKay a couple years ago with The Big Short,
2: although granted that's more funny, and that won Oscars. So, Well, they always say it's easier to go from comedy to drama but yeah. comedy is so much more technical, so who knows? Yeah, I'm exactly.
1: excited about it so that yeah, should be interesting and I also think that like kind of rising to the top of the heap now given that Once Upon a Time in Hollywood has been such a huge box office and, and critical hit is Brad Pitt's next film which is you know written and directed by James Gray who did um, most recently The Lost City of Zed which uh, ooh we, aren't you
0: British yeah
1: we, which we love, <laughs> and uh, we had him on the podcast so he's a really interesting filmmaker this is a kind of a departure for him because it's you know a lot of special effects and it's you know a space movie um, so I don't no, I mean, I have this theory that Brad Pitt, if they run him in supporting For Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, would, would win the Oscar. And if he has another respected critical commercial hit in that Astra, that will only embolden that narrative. Brad Essence. Yeah. Yeah. Brad-a-sance.
0: Ad Astra does seem like exactly the kind of movie, and I'm not just saying that because of my First Man wounds. Uh, that is like technical and and brilliant, and critics love it. That gets zero Oscar nominations, especially because James Gray has made a lot of technical and brilliant and beautiful movies that have gotten zero Oscar nominations. But I think your theory is really spot on, Richard. That like Brad Pitt can get a, a supporting nomination for this huge head he's in that's only bolstered by what looks like a pretty impressive performance in Ad Astra from the trailers.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, and so a lot of a lot of the Venice stuff that. Is also playing in Toronto, and I think so. I feel like we already kind of did talk about some of those titles uh, last week, but I don't think we talked about. Did we talk about the King David Michaud's film with Timothy? Chalamet? I think
0: that's a Venice exclusive. I don't think it's on the TIFF lineup, at least not yet.
1: Yeah, so that's kind of interesting. You know, it's a it's a period piece with Timothy Chalamet. I mean, more of a period than the 1980s. Robert Pattinson's in it. You know, Michaud has been sort of up and down over the years. I think his last film was War Machine with Brad Pitt. Actually, yeah. oh yeah. Um, but I loved his, you know, his first kind of breakthrough feature, Animal, Animal Kingdom. So, you know, I don't know. I'm, I'm curious about that, but really mostly curious about, like, the Chalamet of it. Like, can he, um, can he, can, how does he fare playing King Henry, you know, in the, you know, the medieval ages?
0: Well, we all remember at Toronto last year when he was promoting Beautiful Boy, he had the bowl cut that he, what mm-hmm. he has for this movie and how completely nightmarish it looked at him. So I hope it pays off. He has such beautiful hair. <laughs> Richard, how are you feeling about possibly being one of the few Americans who ever see Roman Polanski's next movie, which uh, is going to be at Venice? But uh, given the state of his reputation in Hollywood, may never get released here.
1: Yeah, especially now. I mean, it's a movie about the Dreyfus affair, which, like, I believe it's the same Dreyfus that Julie Louis is a descendant of. Um, oh
0: yeah, that makes sense.
1: Uh, but um, I, you know, and that topic is interesting. You know, that's the it's called Jacuzzi. You know, we we know that that phrase. But like, I don't. I don't even know if I want to see it. Like I don't. I don't really know what the sort of deal is right now with like, can we separate art from artist? I guess. Um, but like, yeah, I, th- I think Katie, you're right that it there's a there, there's a strong chance it just never even makes its way across the Atlantic.
0: Yeah, between reviewing that and the Joker movie, you might just need to delete your Twitter account once you leave (laughs) Venice. I also
1: am reviewing a Scarlett Johansson movie.
0: (laughs) Perfect Yeah, I wanted to bring up Marriage Story because it's showing up in Venice and HIF and then it's going to be on the New York Film Festival lineup as well. And I am just, like, from the very vague buzz that I hear, like, that's something that I feel like people are getting really excited about. Like, it's like Noah Baumbach's been on a really good streak lately, but this one seems to be um, – it's got more buzz than anything else I've been hearing about that people are maybe seeing early.
1: It's the only film, I believe, at this point that is doing all of the big four. It's going right from Venice to Telluride to Toronto to New York. Um, Do you know
0: that it's in Telluride? Yeah. Oh, uh, oh, because of the the thing you explained last week about like, re- like, where, like yeah, reading exactly. the tea leaves of the Tiff yeah. lineup.
1: Yeah. yeah. Um. So yeah, that thing seems to have some momentum. I've spoken to a couple people at Netflix who have the film, and they, you know, obviously it's their job to be. Upbeat about a movie, but like they still, you know. And I think Cam mentioned last week that he's heard good things, so so that one, um, that that should be interesting. You know, granted, Scarlett Johansson got herself in a little bit of trouble recently, but again, art from artists can be, you know, I, I think
2: that like I'm willing to put aside that. Surely she's not in a Polanski uh drawer at this stage of the I game, right? <laughs> I mean, like, no. let's we can, what a, there what are a degrees, yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> but she could be – I'm trying to think. I know that there's been male examples recently of people who haven't, aren't necessarily, like, accused of bad personal behavior but just can't stop putting their foot in their mouth on the press tour. Um, and Is that's she in really a Liam att-
2: Neeson drawer or not ah, even – I don't even yeah. – I don't know. I mean, Liam Neeson did do that I weird thing. I like forgot like about There was the some Liam behavior – sorry to bring it up. I should leave it. Leave it.
0: Uh, I no, but, like, I don't think we've had a woman in this position before, in, in in this age of kind of everyone's comments being kind of scrutinized by social media. Uh, and Scarlett Johansson's been really popular for a long time, and she's in the biggest movie of all time, and she's going to have her Black Widow spinoff. Like, she's she's so big right now that it will be really interesting um, to see what kind of, I don't know, media training she undergoes between now and when a marriage
1: story opens. Yeah. I mean, the other thing also, you know, going back to the Polanski of it all, it's just – it's it's interesting – To have that coming so soon after Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And it's just like, I just feel like we're like reliving this 50-year-old thing with the same kind of cast of characters. It's just like an odd, I don't know, it's just sort of an odd moment for all of this. And I wonder if that means that the Polanski movie will get more attention than it would have normally.
0: Mm. Also, uh, there's reviews of the Woody Allen movie with Timothy Chalamet that was filmed and then... um You know, it's scrapped from U.S. release that's apparently showing up overseas. So there's another um, weird part of the conversation that won't go away. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) <laughs> um, speaking of, so Marriage Story is a Netflix movie. And last time Noah Bombeck made a movie for Netflix, it was The Meyerwitz Stories, which we definitely talked about and people were big fans of, but didn't seem to get a lot of traction awards wise. I think partly because of the Netflix effect, which we've talked about a lot. Uh, and Netflix has a couple of other titles that are supposedly coming later this year The Irishman being one of them. It's going to be the opening night of New York Film Festival. That's obviously a huge slot. Um, but one of them that I'm curious if it's even still coming is The Last Thing He Wanted, which is a Joan Didion adaptation that Dee Reese is making. That seems like something that Netflix could stand to put on the festival circuit and kind of build the buzz for. And it makes me curious for yet another Oscar season of like what their strategy is with all of these hugely uh, exciting movies that they're collecting.
1: Yeah. I mean, they have a crazy roster this year. Um you know, I know we're going to talk about also the Irishman, which by, I think by the time this this episode comes out, the the trailer will be live. I think that's coming out Wednesday of this week. You know, so it's not only a huge deal that, like, They've marshaled all the money and the technology to do this de aging thing, but they've also I I didn't realize that this is the first time Al Pacino and Martin Scorsese have worked together. Um, yeah, that's um, crazy. Wild. That Which is, is wild. Weird. You know? Yeah. Wow. Um, and so that you know, so I think all that kind of like these are like you know two boomer, well three boomer icons in Scorsese and De Niro and Pacino all together in a like, nice you know meaty mob story about Jimmy Hoffa and, and you know the, this 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 hitman for the mob like. Plus the kind of prestigier aspects, plus it's opening your Film Festival. And it's just like, that's such, like everything about this is just like an absolute coup for, for Netflix. Yeah. yeah. Yeah,
3: but it's going to all hinge on how that technology lands with everyone. Like I'm deeply skeptical of it. And I remember like Billy Lynn's halftime walk, right? Like that had so much buzz and then it landed and everyone's like, oh, the frame rate, I can't. You know what I mean? Like there's, That was horrible. There's a there's a technological bomb like waiting to go off on this thing and, and I'm really very worried about it but maybe it'll be maybe it'll be great but I mean like if if Marvel with all their bajillions and all their technical wondery can't you know like their their, their aging stuff is good but it's like good for like a cameo and then you're like oh hey young Kurt Russell and then let's roll on with the rest of the movie um, but I'm, I'm, I'm really a little. I'm worried about it. I'm very worried. So I, I, I was I,
2: very skeptical at the beginning, and then as I heard more about it and realized that it really just fits in with Scorsese's sort of lifelong or at least late career thing of like, why should I make a movie if I can't do something weird, experimental with some technology, and then and then the kind of just the sheer sort of like these old timers like let's let's do one more show for the road type of a vibe like i'm i'm now cautiously optimistic that it's even if it's it has to be weird yeah. but that it'll be fun and sort of cuz originally i was just like why the hell don't you just get some younger actors <laughs> come on guys but right. i heard from somebody who <laughs> You know, as close to the production, that in fact, there people have seen you know versions before the de aging happened, and that it 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 looked pretty good, and that it was kind of there was stuff where Scorsese was like to Pacino, you know, you got to get up those stairs faster. You're playing a younger man, like do it, you know. And so (laughs) I think there's something kind of playful about the whole thing that that is not necessarily reflected by the hundred plus zillion dollar price tag of the movie, but you know, Scorsese has earned it, right, to do whatever the hell he wants at this stage. game.
3: Absolutely. He can do whatever he wants. And I'm like, and I'm definitely going to see it. And I'm definitely sure there's going to be a lot to like about it. But in terms of it being like, I think it could just zap uh, a war's momentum if the effect doesn't land in the way, you know, the way that they're hoping it might.
2: You know what I mean? If it lands in the uncanny valley, then it's not going to be right.
0: I'm also curious about the effect of most people watching it at home, um, because the way that it works with Netflix. Like, I'm guessing they'll give it a big Roma-style theatrical release because it's Martin Scorsese and he values theatrical experience so much. But I wonder if the de-aging looks better or worse if you're watching it on your screen.
1: Yeah, I mean, de-aging plus you know all that motion smoothing and everything that is on HD TVs now. Like, uh, who who the heck knows? But something that's interesting about the technology um, that I'm told is that. They weren't filming with, you know, ping pong balls taped, you know, with green things on their apparatus, you know, all that kind of like motion capture technology we think of. So I guess what you're seeing on screen with De Niro and Pesci and Pacino, all three I believe, are aged down, and maybe Harvey Keitel too. It really is their movements, and they've just figured out a way in post to graft to, to do the de aging that way without having to have the actors locked into this this crazy equipment while actually shooting. So, they, I mean, if your phone can make you look eighty years old at this point, like you know, surely <laughs> <Shirley laughs> Scorsese can. True. 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 Um, you know, but but the, but FaceApp doesn't know how to make you look 80 and move that's that's right. that's the difficult yeah thing. Uh, yeah mm-hmm.
3: that's the one moment in Captain Marvel when Sam Jackson who gets de-aged in all of Captain Marvel and it's actually very convincing there's just one point when he's running and I'm like oh that's an older man I see <laughs> <laughs> you know mm. what I mean like mm-hmm. you can't you can't hide it in the run I think sometimes so yeah
0: yeah but these guys they're living hard in the period they mean they might have moved like a 70-year-old man when it was set in the 50s, 60s. <laughs> I should do sure my kidding. Irishman research. <laughs> sure. I'm already making excuses. I'm fan, like, fan casting the Irishman. Um, do you guys have anything else that's on your radars that you're still looking for to show up of like titles that we've been looking out for? Like Cats, I think we all knew was not going to go to a festival. It does not seem to be the case, even though it's still the only movie anyone wants to talk about as evidenced by Idris Elba's Hobbs and Shaw press tour. I've been keeping an eye out for the Chloe Zhao movie that she made with Frances McDormand called Nomadland that's mm-hmm. from Fox Searchlight. I kind of thought it would be on um, one of these festival lineups, but it's not there yet.
1: That feels like they could add that to Toronto, maybe. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm also curious about Noah Hawley's film Lucy in the Sky yeah
3: Yeah. that's the one I was about to say Lucy in the Sky that's my number one question mark right
0: where is that gonna go yeah especially now that Natalie Portman's uh, back in the Marvel franchise she's like she's she's in the top of the news cycle again
1: yeah, and I think it was confirmed to me that Little Women is not playing any festivals. It's kind of going the Phantom Thread route. Um, yeah, but that makes sense to me. Usually there's like one or two movies that do that, but at this year it feels like there's that. There's the Jay Roach movie uh, about Roger Ailes and the, all the harassment stuff. There's Sam Mendes' huge World War One uh, yeah. epic 1917. Which so, also
0: has a Christmas Day release. All three of those have Christmas releases, yeah, right? So
1: there's a lot this year that, that could be sort of held for later I mean obviously AFI comes you know I think in November and that, and that usually premieres one or two things I believe yeah. that's where the big short premiered but yep. it'll, it'll be interesting is the West Side story gonna be in that's, any that's I of the... think next that's year that's next year
0: that seems to be filming outside of the apartment of everyone I know in New York City like every weekend <laughs> comes someone else who's like they're here they're at my house you were at, they were outside your house weren't they Richard
1: they sure were yep
3: <laughs> is it is it too early to take like a sort of um, and maybe this is a all season long sort of question but like a a, a more holistic look at the way in which Fox Searchlight being owned by Disney now changes anything about strategy or the way that Disney like being a pro- like proximate to Fox Searchlight changes their strategy about anything because like obviously this is the like this is the awards feather in their cap that came with the acquisition of Fox and I'm just curious to see if we see any changes as a result of that or any any um movement from Disney as they got like so close with Black Panther, sort of, like, I don't know. I'm, I'm curious. Like, now that Disney swallowed Hollywood, I guess, is my point. What is it going to do to swallow the award season?
0: I'm Question extremely mark. curious about that as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, I feel like this year, maybe things were already kind of set, although this stuff actually happens pretty last minute. But, you know, they have Jojo Rabbit. They have Lucy in the Sky. Um, they have they Nomadland. They've got the Terrence Land, Malick like movie. They've got the Terrence Malick movie, like which, you know, we shouldn't discount that film. Um, I'm, I'm sure that's going to show up you know maybe New York Film Festival but um, I, I think it's more for me Joanna it's, and it's a really great question it's more like what is next year going to look like you know right, right, right. Or, yeah, or, the, yeah. or the year after so it's not stuff that's already in production um, or wrapped but like at, you know, future acquisitions and all that, that that's I think where we might see the change
0: I'm also wondering about the 20th Century Fox, the people who they inherited from there, and obviously there's been a lot of people who were at Big Fox who've been kind of pushed out by Disney, so it's not like it's all of the same people, but, you know, they've had more recent, you know, they had Bohemian Rhapsody. Like, they, there's there are people within Big Fox who I would think Disney is hanging on to who know how to run an awards campaign in a way that Disney hasn't in the past. So I'm curious if maybe that filters into a campaign for uh, the Avengers movie and, like, my pet theory that Robert Downey Jr. is going to get a supporting actor nomination. Um, but I do think, Joanna, that like, maybe the big question of, of you know, award season power players this fall.
3: And I just thought I'd get it out of the way.
0: I thought we'd solve it in July. Did we not solve it? Okay, <laughs> well, well, keep an eye on it. Then. Okay, Joanna, you have spent the last week or so kind of hearing all of the biggest pitches from the biggest players in prestige television. Uh, Casey Boyce of HBO came to TCA, which is the Television Critics Association panel meeting whatever when, summer press tour yeah there we go um yeah. so you kind of got a real uh, the best sales pitch for all of the biggest shows that are coming out this fall so what got you the most intrigued out there
3: yeah, um, I, I should clarify that I was only there for the cable portion of it, and they have moved because of actually the Disney acquisition that we were just talking about. They have moved FX deeper into the network schedule because FX usually is like next to Fox's day, but now it's also next to ABC's day. So it's sort of like just that growing massive power over there with FX. So I was not there for the the Landgraf State of a uh, you know the the State of the Union that John Landgraf usually gives. Um, uh, he has not given that yet. So. So uh our eyes will be on that later this week. But um yeah, I was there for HBO Day, um, Hulu Day, Amazon Day, et cetera, et cetera. And um Casey Bloys was sort of the big before they tried out these panels with their upcoming shows that they're excited about, uh, the brave executives of TV certain TV networks do something called an executive session where they just, an executive comes out, sits in a chair, and everyone in the audience gets to ask them, like pepper them with questions. And on like a particularly scandal ridden year, like an executive will sit it out or there are are many reasons why an exec will sit it out and and, um, Casey Bloys sat down Uh, from HBO in front of everyone. It was just like, I'm ready. Bring it to me. And it was so clear. Like, there was one year he came. I think it was the Confederate year. He came. He was sort of like one of his first executive sessions. He came, and he was just not ready. And it did not go super well.
0: And now Confederate is not happening.
3: (laughs) uh, Well, everyone was sort of like salivating because like there was the big little lie scandal. There's like the HBO finale scandal. There's like all this sort of stuff. And everyone like, this was the big, this is it. And um, he came and he sat down. Uh, and he was just so he was super ready. And like whatever you might make of his answers, like someone would start asking him a question and he looked like just like the 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 brightest A plus student, just like so ready. He was like, Yes, okay, yeah, I got this one. All right, yeah, big little <laughs> lies. Here's what I have to say about this. Or like someone's like, So the finale He's like, Yes. Uh-huh. Yes. So glad you started with that one. I have this one memorized too. Like, um, but he did, <laughs> you know, like good naturedly. And then later, you know, they had this big splashy Warner's uh entertainment party uh, later that night with all the like all the town. It. a bunch of like wrestlers were there, but also like HBO stars and stuff like that. Uh, and Casey boys just like came and sat down and talked to three of us for like 40 minutes. No, it wasn't that long, 20 minutes. I don't know. Um, and he was just sort of like, Ooh, how did it go? We were like, you know, you did pretty well. He's like, who else, who else are you going to grill? What, what's next? And we were like, Oh, you were it. You were the main course. He's like, Oh, I like when the other ones get grilled. Like, that's so fun. So <laughs> that was an insight to me that the other execs are like watching each other get like roasted at the TCAs or whatever. So, um, But yeah, I mean, HBO Day was pretty impressive because they've got Watchmen His Dark Materials. We got to see early looks at both of, like, the first episode of both of those um, upcoming series, which are big, sort of crowd-pleasery, well, His Dark Materials might be. I'm, I'm curious about Watchmen lands, even though it's a comic book adaptation of a very, very popular comic book. It's still Damon Lindelof going like maybe even a little weirder than The Leftovers, which I'm just really excited they should be able to let him do. It's very much my stuff, but um, I don't know, uh, you know how the wider tastes will feel
0: about it. How did it get received at Comic Con? Because you were covering it when it uh, premiered a big trailer at Comic Con as well, and that seems like the audience that might, you know, instinctively say like, "This isn't the Watchmen we know." But it seems like it went over better.
3: Oh, I I think people were really excited because uh, what they cleverly did, you know, uh, Lindelof is calling this a remix, not like a a reboot or even a sequel, even though I would call it a sequel. Um, He's calling it a remix. And what they held back for a long time was exactly how many characters from the original were in this. At first, you only thought it was um, one character. But uh, when they released the trailer at Comic-Con, it was revealed that a bunch of characters like Dr. Manhattan or Silk Spectre. I'm sorry, please don't nod off uh, awards <laughs> people as I start mentioning comic book character names. But um, Regina King's in it. She's amazing. She's the lead. She's incredible. Uh, one person in the TCA audience brought up a question because it it deals with, uh, surprisingly, it deals with a lot of... Very sensitive uh, white supremacy, race relation, uh, the police force, sort of like all of those topics are what he's most interested in. Um, and it's because Lindelof said, you know, Washington was written in the 80s and it was it was responding to like what was happening in the 80s. That's what the was- that Washington was about. This Washington is about like what's happening now. And this seems to be the thing that's happening now that seems most worth questioning authority and, you know, vigilantes and stuff like that is this idea of like white supremacy and racial relations, stuff like that. And so uh, he got some tough like questions from the audience about the way it was presented in the first episode. And I think it'll be a little bit of a wait and see, Uh, but he's not shying away from sort of tackling that. So that should be interesting. I'll, I'll be interested to see if like there is such an extreme reaction to the first episode that he doesn't get a chance to, uh, you know, prove himself later
0: on. But I'm I'm really Mm -hmm. hopeful. Is Watchmen going to be a series or is this just a one-off? A series, I believe. Okay, Um, interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Robert Redford's
3: president. I don't know if you guys have picked that up from the thing, but that's a really interesting thing. I don't know if Robert Redford's actually in it, but they use his likeness. You mean the guy from the GIF? Uh, Yeah, that guy (laughs) That guy from the Gift. But um, Yeah, in in the original Watchmen They've done away with term limits And so Nixon is still president in the 80s That's that's one of the conceits of the original Watchmen Uh, And so This follows actually one of the later comics Where uh, Nixon Dies in office Ford takes over for him briefly And then Robert Redford beats him in like the 92 election Or something like that And so Robert Redford has been president from 92 Till now And And the question is... that Lindelof said he was interested in, in in, like pursuing was what are the long-term effects of a well-intentioned, like rich liberal white guy (laughs) in office? And like, that's interesting because I'm, it's not going to be like, it's not a utopia. So like what, you know, what are, what are the downsides of that? Um, So I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm really, I'm really, really interested. I got Katie excited because I told her there's three full numbers from the musical Oklahoma in the first episode. Yeah. Uh, So Don Johnson has a beautiful, singing voice so who knew i didn't know that so and we're expecting um,
0: watchmen in like october roughly they yeah. haven't announced a date right
3: I think they said October. Oh, yeah. Okay, great. They didn't say a specific date, but in October, so yeah. And then I'm not sure about His Dark Materials, which is an adaptation of the Philip Pullman book, um, Lin-Manuel Miranda, James McAvoy, etc. cetera. Uh, uh, one concept, one important concept from that story is that uh, everyone's soul sort of exists on the outside of their body in the shape of an animal. I know this is high fantasy, folks, but um, the the special effects were not done on that. So we watched like a bunch of previs like little animals running around, which was like sort of interesting, but but I'm really really uh, intrigued by that. But that's sort of you know the issue following the Thrones lead into like more genre, more literary adaptation, which is, seems to be sort of like what everyone is is interested in. But in terms of the show that TV critics were most excited about, um, that has to be Modern Modern Love, which is an Amazon series, which is from John Carney, um, and it's an adaptation of the Modern Love uh, column in the New York Times. It it reminds me a lot of, like, Paris-Jetemme or New York I Love You. You know what I mean? It's like a bunch of little... Anne Hathaway got in trouble, I guess, for calling it a short film, her, her installment. Or it's like the Romanoffs, you know what I mean? Except less connected. But it's, it's like, a bunch of little short films, little love stories based on, on these columns. And it's just, like, it's just beautiful. And it's, like, Dev Patel and Kristen Milioti and Tina Fey and uh, John Slattery and all this sort of stuff. It's just, like, it's, like perfect catnip for TV critics and they just ate it up and like people were openly weeping watching their screeners and stuff like that. So um that's you know that's one that I don't know how it'll do with like the main mainstream but in terms of like critical buzz that feels like another big win for them after Fleabag was such a huge win for Amazon um earlier this year. So
0: in the general vibe you got from being here and like we've been asking ourselves the post game of thrones question for television as a whole uh since may um do you, is the state of the television union strong joanna well, something
3: something really sharp that um Emily Vandervoe said to me, uh, TV credit for Vox while I was there, was like we don't that's actually a question we can maybe put on the back burner because let's be real, the show we're all gonna be watching for the next few years is like the Trump slash election show. Oh, right. God. Like that's 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 the next Game of Thrones, to be honest with you. And then we can figure out what comes after that. But like, is the state of the TV union strong? No, I mean, like, something else, something I say every year when I go to TCA is I think I was, I think when I started going a couple years ago, it was, like, the tail end of, like, the heyday uh, in terms of, like, I don't know, excess of publicity and, like, uh, glitz and glamour and pushing things stuff like that and, and it just keeps stripping back and stripping back and stripping back which works better for me because I get uncomfortable with like the amount of swag they hang out and stuff like that like I just think it's a little it's a little excessive but like I think with the diminishing returns on like trying to get every single show to pop. You can't get every single show to pop. You can hardly get any show to pop. So like you have to, and there's so much content that you just have to spread your resources a little bit thinner, I think, if you're a network. And so you can't just like come and just put all of your push behind these three shows when you're HBO and you've doubled your output. You know what I mean? Like you've got you've got half as many resources now. Um, I've heard behind the scenes what I heard uh, is that HBO is scrambling, not because they're like, oh shit, Thrones is over, but Like, at least the publicity team, they're like, oh, God, all this content we have to push out. Like, I've heard it's absolute, like, chaos over behind the scenes at HBO in that regard. And, like, you wouldn't know it necessarily uh, based on, you know, like, the huge Emmy success, uh, Chernobyl, great hit, blah, blah, blah. But in terms of them... Adapting to this new normal of I don't know, just adding one extra night to their lineup is has uh, has put them in a bit of a spin, is what I've heard. So, um, yeah, it's it, TCA is a really interesting place to hear a lot of a lot, a lot of, of a lot of gossip, <laughs> yeah, a lot of
1: things. Um, was there anything at TCA's about Apple Plus? No. Mm, interesting. And
0: that's why Apple Plus did like their own you right now thing. So. But we still don't know when any of those shows are coming, right?
3: Allegedly the morning show is supposed to come before the end of the year, isn't yeah, it? I thought like, so. Yeah.
2: Yeah.
0: God, this is like cuz Disney Plus is launching in November. This is and then that's this is going to be a really crazy fall for TV. Here it comes. On top of all of these movies we just talked about. <laughs> Get ready.
2: Too much content. Get
0: excited. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I was talking to someone um, the other night who works at Rotten Tomatoes and um, we were at like a kind of a movie event together and and I was like, she was like, I can't believe this is all starting. And I was like, no, it's exciting. Like, I love the fall stuff. But now that I'm thinking of like huge upheaval television narratives happening at the same time as like our, you know, regular Oscar (laughs) stuff, it's like, wow, that's, that's quite a bit. You're going to
0: miss Love Island so much from this period (laughs) where there's nothing else to watch. Yeah,
1: exactly. So now we're going to get into our conversation about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, um, which is really chock full of spoilers. So if you don't want to be spoiled on the movie, uh, I don't know, just we'll we'll talk to you next week. (laughs)
0: Okay, so as promised, we want to talk in a little bit more depth um, about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the Quentin Tarantino movie, which, as we mentioned, is a huge box office success. It really does feel like the first movie of the summer that people are, like, really talking about and really diving into. Um, Mike, you saw it, uh, I think, last night, maybe jumping on. Like, after we've been hearing people talking about it, like Richard, at Cannes for months. So when you finally got to see it, how did it stack up to what you were expecting?
2: Well, I had kind of... Admittedly kept my mind as clear as possible from stuff in advance. so um, you know, I obviously saw this and that, but I but I was not I didn't have huge expectations of anything either way. And I confess I was kind of going into it thinking, I just have to see this to have seen it. I wasn't like that psyched about it in certain <laughs> ways, which maybe was good because I found it really enjoyable, delightfully. it was just delightfully unapologetically Gen X in its sort of (laughs) like... I mean, I really do think it's kind of like a middle-aged fantasy of just being allowed to age gracefully without a bunch of fanatical young people around. Or if they do come around, you just blow them away. Uh, and as, you know, oh. as problematic as that may be, it was, I found it enjoyable. And I sort of like, was like, Brad Pitt is in this movie is like my spirit animal right now. Um, but he and Leo are so good. You know, like there's plenty to argue about, but I think just, it, it just has such a great vibe. It just has a good pace. It's it's like it, it rolls along, but it's it's actually really meticulously constructed. When you think about it later, you spend the next, you know, I think you know it lodges in your mind, and all kinds of things come back to you. Think, oh, that's why he did that. That's why he had that move. So I don't know. I I, I think it's I I think it's probably very different being a forty-four year old frankly white guy watching it then then if you're like a millennial watching it going what's up with this mo- weird movie like i just found it hilarious like to me it was just like one long kind of great joke in, this in is a my,
3: way this is my new favorite take on this movie it didn't even occur <laughs> to me that it's gen x no, that it's like Tarantino being like, young people. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I
0: mean, there's the, like the scene where the hippies walk across the street and Leo's like, oh, fucking hippies. And you're yeah. like, yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. No,
2: I mean, when he comes out there and yells at them in the car, to get the hell out of my property, I was just like, why am I like cheering <laughs> in my mind of for this? Yeah, it's yeah, like yeah, the a dream. Of the, of I did the, not
3: even. Oh, sorry. <laughs> that just connected a piece for me. Um, yeah, I also saw it last night. And having like tried to dodge spoilers, uh, fairly successfully for like a week and I I didn't love it as much as Mike I I liked it um I I think it's it's trying to be a little too much movie I think and there I would disagree a little bit with like the meticulous thing there's just some stuff that felt like a little sloppy to me like the way some of the flashbacks were done or the way like some famous people were labeled and other people weren't, I'm like, why don't we be consistent? Why don't we do consistent like Kurt Russell narration or consistent like IDing these seventies icons or
0: whatever. Or, um, or Damian Lewis as Stephen Queen, just explaining all the characters in the, in the scene. <laughs> why not? Why
3: do not, why not do like a big short thing and like cut to Damian Lewis in a hot tub being like, you see <laughs> <laughs> like this person, love this person. But, um, but having listened to all of Karina Longworth's uh, "You Must Remember This" series on Manson and Hollywood uh, twice, which I never really listened to a podcast series, but I did for that, um, I was fascinated by like the Spawn Ranch stuff, which is stuff that I was familiar with, and then what happened night of, um, which is stuff that I'm like very. I'm not like a Manson like freak or whatever, but the the specific intersection of Hollywood and fame and Manson and and what what about it particularly irked his followers. Um, like, I really think Karina Longworth owes his royalties off of this film. Um, so I thought that was interesting. But what, one of the, the elements of the discourse that I have found interesting that I've like, tried to soak up in the last 24 hours is um, this question of, like, are, was Tarantino obligated to inform perhaps younger viewers a little bit more about the Manson family um, because the ending is fairly violent. Um, not fairly, it's extremely Tarantino Very violent. The top violent <laughs> at the expense of these Manson family members. That's the spoiler that, uh, you know, is coming. And um, in the same way that *Inglorious bastards, you know, uh, it takes revenge on Nazis or Django and chain takes revenge on like slave owners. But for some people, maybe the Manson family isn't coded as automatically evil, though I think probably they should be or it's a little more complicated. But they're not it's not like Nazi bad slave owner bad, young hippie girl equally bad, you know, like young hippie misguided hippie girl or whatever it is. And so like to see those girls get their faces bashed in or or what have you, I'm like, these the these people did unspeakably evil things. And so perhaps they should be coded as evilly as those other institutions. But like would it have helped if Tarantino had Shown a little bit more of that for people less familiar with the murders. I don't know. Um, that's because a, that's there are a people who
0: think it's a gratuitous amount of violence toward women sp- specifically. Uh, yeah, and I like I don't I don't know. I was
3: cringing at the violence, but not 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 necessarily the genderedness of it, but just sort of like it was just a lot. <laughs> it was a lot all at once, and I don't usually consider myself that
2: squeamish, but, um, but, I, well, but I feel like he, this is why I, this is part of why I'm like enjoyed it being unapologetically that's why I said unapologetically yeah. Gen X yeah. like the whole point of Tarantino is he's going to go way over the top yeah, with crazy absolutely. violence and profanity and all kinds of screwed up stuff and in the old days <laughs> in prehistory you know the whole idea was like are you hip enough to like get through this and and sort of be in on the joke and realize that it's all a big spectacle and now it's become you know how like politically coded is this and and that's fine it's a different it's a different world but but i don't know it feels like It feels like uh, quite a quibble to be like he should have better explained what the Manson family was. I mean, if 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 people don't know what the Manson family is, like they need to be, as Dennis Leary once said, to bring up a problematic um, comedian. Like you know, these people need to be worrying about low flying planes, (laughs) right? Quite possibly. No, I mean, like I'm
3: I'm I'm saying I'm not convinced that that's right. I like let me be clear, I'm not convinced that that's correct. That's just like an argument that I've seen that I've been like chewing over. Like, is that Like I'm, I'm just wondering how much my familiarity, my, my extreme familiarity with the situation helps me absorb the story and like trying to figure out what it would be like to go in not knowing yeah, but it sh- it's supposed
2: to be. I mean, it's problematic as hell. Like everything. <laughs> like 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 Brad Pitt seemingly maybe killed his maybe, wife yeah. in this in this movie. Like these are not these aren't like good guys or anything. Right. There's no heroes. It's just like a, another wacko revenge fantasy from you know the diseased but sort of brilliant mind of Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, I think that the, I think an interesting facet of
1: not necessarily how much Tarantino needed to explain the kind of, you know, dramatis persona, but I don't necessarily 100% agree with it, but um, Richard Brody at The New Yorker wrote a really interesting kind of like counter-narrative review, as he often does, of this movie and kind of its politics, and I think that like when we're talking about the hippie stuff, I like, I love, I mean, I, this movie has like a million possible reads, and I, I like yours a lot, Mike, about about um, how you saw it as this kind of just like permission to just kind of be like, ah, oh, like, kids, blah, you know, right. like, that's, that's fun. I think that with them being hippies in particular, the movie could be seen as doing a bad equating of hippies as a broader kind of idea with Manson people and and maybe the people that Didion writes about in Slouching Toward Bethlehem. Because you know, hippies were essentially an anti-war movement, and and were you know, th- there's a lot of conspiracy theory that the Manson murders were orchestrated by the CIA to discredit leftist, you know, you know, young, youthful political ideology. So I'm not saying I come down on any sort of way about that. I just think it's, it, there's an interesting political dimension to the movie, as well as the personal for Tarantino, the personal for the viewer. Um,
2: well, and I and I, I agree, and I think that my my read which could be totally wrong is that tarantino is in on the joke of being like holy shit i'm a middle-aged white guy like Mm -hmm. why do i relate to like a washed up pathetic western guy why do i why am i afraid of of left-wing young people why do i like why do i think they're gonna hurt me and i want to hurt them you know like i think that like, I think Quint Tarantino's Tarantino is enough of an artist to be like, there's something brewing here that I don't particularly like. It was way more fun to be the angry, cool young person. Mm-hmm. But here I am. Hmm. I'm like a, I'm a slightly washed up, like, weird middle-aged white guy. <laughs> you know, what is that like?
3: Yeah, and I think in support of your point, Mike, is... Cam and Richard alluded this to this last week, but like I was fully not prepared for the feet in this film and the feet, the like you know, this has long been a joke about Tarantino that he has a foot fetish and he puts a lot of like foot shots <laughs> in his in his movie. But this was like so over the top that it was just sort of like, yeah, I fucking hear what you said about my foot fetish. Here you go. Here's Margot Foley <laughs> like smushing her feet up against the windshield. Like you know, it's just sort of like, like I get it. I know what you think of me. Here it is. You know what I mean? Like I think I think that supports your point, Mike. And I like that. I like that reading a lot another reading that I really like um, a friend of mine Lindsay Romain who writes for Nerdist she's like one of the most Manson slash Sharon Tate obsessed people I know Um, she had a great point about that about that boat scene about that question of like did Brad Pitt character murder his wife and so the question then becomes like okay if he did like it cuts away so you don't know necessarily so if he did um, then can we see like can we see um Like Leo's character as sort of like a Tarantino enabling uh, a Weinstein sort of figure, you know, like a bad, a bad guy. Right. Or can we see Tarantino himself as the Brad Pitt figure? You know, because he had his own, like, sort of scandal around, like, the way in which he treated women on his set and stuff like that. Um, not same drawers, to allude to Mike's thing. Separate drawers here, but, like, similar questions. Like, who is Tarantino and all this? And and what does, whether or not Brad Pitt's character killed his wife either. He killed his wife and he's been let skate by in Hollywood uh, because Hollywood, it, you know, like, it turns a blind eye to these things all the time. Or he didn't, and he's someone who's like in need of a uh, righteous sort of uh, redemption sort of thing. I don't know. It's, it's, it's interesting to me that that boat scene is left as a, as some, a slight question mark and, and and how that changes the reading of the film. Um, it also seemed like a was. Robert
0: Wagner reference just oh absolutely. A very basic. I, would. I, right. I, yeah, sure. I mean, which is not I don't know how the real Robert Wagner would fit into a story like this, but you know you, you see like husband wife boat mystery. I put my mind there. It's also I mean, really interesting uh, that he's got this, like, Hollywood mocker character played by Al Pacino. And it, I thought Al Pacino was so great in this, like, two-scene role as Malvin Shores, But that he's not <laughs> – that's not really a Weinstein-y figure at all. Like, there's no – even though it's a movie about Hollywood, Tarantino doesn't seem to be grappling with Weinstein in any real way. Which he didn't have to, but I might have expected a little bit more of it.
3: Well, Polanski's in this movie, you know, like – that's no lines at all. With <laughs> – <laughs> It's weird to have Polanski in the movie. I don't know. It's just, it's interesting. I
0: don't know how you could have not had Polanski in the movie. I think the amount of Polanski in there is about as much as you could get away with. Well,
3: and the other thing we should probably mention is this: is this question? This other scandal is like, does this uh, film do right by Sharon Tate? And I would urge people to read um, our colleague Julie Miller's interview with Sharon Tate's sister, where she talks about like how she felt about the depiction. Um, like Margot Robbie's character of Sharon Tate does not have many lines in the film, and there was like a question at Cannes that sort of sparked this whole conversation of like, you know, sidelining the murder victim in her own story or, or whatever it is. But um, I think some people have made some good points about the fact that like, I feel like I know Sharon Tate more from this film. Like there's this long sequence where you get to see the actual Sharon Tate, like in a film. I've never watched a Sharon Tate film. I feel like this movie is more interested in me knowing who she actually is than any other sort of treatment of the murder that I've seen before. You know, like... I would agree with that completely. Well, and,
2: and it is interesting to take her out of the tragic... Um, to erase her tragedy, right? And then yeah. don't... Mm-hmm. Correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't Polanski get into all of his crazy trouble after she died and some people thought that yeah. it was a, a possibly a sort of whack like really crazy grief reaction so you, you're even left to sort of be like the, the only kind of reference to Polanski is like that Polish prick or whatever they call him mm-hmm. um, but you're even left to wonder like maybe in this fantasy world Polanski actually like doesn't do those horrible things and isn't a fugitive in Europe for the rest of his life like Mm -hmm. it is a Mm. it's a it's a it's an interesting kind of delusional um I would I would agree with Richard I didn't really want to read that Richard Brody thing because it just he comes to it with this moralism that I find (laughs) irritating but like I don't I don't think you can deny that it's a fairly reactionary vision like let's face it Right, yeah. it's like it, cool. it's a, it's celebrating to you know like yeah middle aged white dudes. And I who are think just that's like, <laughs> okay. what's catching people off guard is a reactionary kind of
1: conservative movie from Quentin Tarantino. Right. But he's like yeah. the enfant terrible, you know. <laughs> and it's like, well, he was 25 years ago, but yeah. you know, he's now in his mid 50s. And and um, you know, I, I think, Mike, I would love to think that Tarantino is that sort of not just self aware, but sort of like almost like therapeutically minded that he just he wanted to work something through you know in right. making the movie um, mm-hmm. I think his reaction to the question at can about Margot Roby's lines indicated to me that maybe he hasn't been like paying attention yeah. to the world but like uh, yeah. maybe
2: he has I don't know you know um, yeah no, I mean uh, the other thing is you're right. Like like artists make stuff because they want to make it, and it's the best thing they can think of to make. And 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 I guess probably in a perfect world aren't uh, assessing the whole time the political implications right. of what they're doing. So that's left for us to do. <laughs> right. Um,
3: I, I do want to clarify. I think that uh, Roman Plainsky, though not as extremely bad, like had done some like. Questionable behavior before, like, before Sharon Tay says. So it's not just like that her death sent him tail spinning into, like, but you're right. Like, what if is a great question to ask at the end of this? And that's like what that overhead shot at the end is. You're like left to think, like, okay, what if? And I, like, I'm glad that Richard brought up Joan Didion because I was thinking about those Didion, like, the Didion essay on, like, what the Manson murders did, did to Hollywood. So if you strip, if you take the Manson murders out of Hollywood, out of, like, out of the flower power movement, like, cause that like, like it was already souring the flower power movement, but like the Manson thing is what like really cemented like hippieism as like a threat. And if you take that out, if you take th- their murders out, then like, what does, you know, I, I'm, I'm just, I'm like, I want, I want the next chapter. What does the rest of the world look like? Yeah. Without the Manson happen. murders. Now, now cancel yeah. Altamont. Get re-elected. Next get Yeah. <laughs> do the Beatles erase or miss? No, I'm just kidding. That's a different movie. Um, but like, you know, like I, I'm, I'm int- I am like fascinated to wonder like, you know, what, yeah, what the, what Hollywood specifically and what the world looks like with, Without the manspider, so I don't
0: know. Um, I wanted to get into the Leonardo DiCaprio of it all um, because Mike, you were just talking about this idea of like you know having sympathy and like reflection of someone who reaches middle age, and I think DiCaprio is such a sympathetic avatar for that thought. Like it's the last time he was in a role; it was The Revenant. We spent so many months of Oscar season rooting for him to finally win an Oscar, and he started off his career as he's kind of like scrappy strivers. You think of Romeo and Juliet or Titanic, and has since spent so much time being like you know doing accents and playing like tough guys and schemers and uh, I I think of this role as being low status like this guy who's kind of insecure and like really relying on Brad Pitt to help him out and we haven't seen him in that mode in such a long time which makes him so sympathetic I think especially when you get to the end and he finally gets like his invitation up to the top of the mountain uh, to go to Sharon Tate's house it made it gave me so much affection for him that I've always you know been a DiCaprio fan but I felt like I hadn't been that interested in him as much lately yeah. and it sparked so much for me of what he can do and so much just meta-thinking about his career, which I think is really definitely part of the text of this. Tarantino's
2: Tarantino is so good at casting and at, at giving them roles that sort of, I feel like resonate in interesting ways with their lives. I mean, the Brad Pitt side of it is so interesting first of all, like always give Brad a character who's like not very intellectual and and, and uh, like on yes. drugs. Like that's Eats always a a, always a good idea. Um, <laughs> Burn after reading. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> and then um, and then Leo here. Yeah. Like like Leo is obviously not washed up in any way. But like Leo's getting to the period of time when his full-on prime is you know like is coming to an end and so to anticipate that in a way with this with this role and also play the alternate universe where instead of becoming the biggest movie star in the world he was like a fine star who kind of then like had to go to italy to like crank up his career is really fun and you're absolutely right that that vulnerability makes him likable in a way that it's been a long time i think since you were rooting for leo yeah, I mean, we rooted for him, like you said, for The Revenant, but even then it was sort of like, it was like rooting for, you know, General Motors or something like, like <laughs> for <the> here, <laughs> yeah, here you're really kind of like, like, um, you feel for the guy. Uh, and yet you also can see that he's ridiculous. Um, and I give Leo credit for, for like taking on a role like that. I mean, it's, it's, I don't think you have to you also- be that difficult to kind of put yourself in Tarantino's hands, I guess, as a male actor anyway. But, um, but he, it's, it really comes together. It works.
3: Well, he does comedy so well. I'm watching both him and and Pitt do like do the comedy mode you know like yeah. I loved I love Leo and Django Unchained and I was I was like looking at his filmography to be like okay when's the last time I felt like Leo was vulnerable he's vulnerable in The Great Gatsby that just happens to not be a great film but like he's giving like a pretty good like you you feel for the guy in Gatsby uh, performance but you're right I mean like there is something very special about this especially like him beating himself up on the set of this like dumb western that he's making <laughs> yeah um, or the first scene he's yeah. crying <laughs> yeah (laughs)
2: over what he's just been told by uh,
1: Pacino's character. I I think it's also interesting, you know, to think about DiCaprio being, you know, four years post-Oscar. This is his first thing after he won an Oscar for, like, a real labor of physical, you know, intensity... Because, you know, I think it's not really 100% true, but something we talk about with with people who win acting Oscars is actresses get it at the beginning of their career. Actors get it either at the end or, like, comfortably in the middle of their career. And so what did that Oscar confer on DiCaprio just as he turned 40? Like, you know, um, so to have this role, this, you know, hurting, still really, really desperate for creative, you know... um, uh, fulfillment, but also kind of fatalist about the whole thing to be his role right after the, I mean, not right, four years after the Oscar, like that's an interesting kind of psychological mapping of like where he might be right now, you know?
2: Yeah. And there's something about, sorry, full spoiler. We've obviously been spoiling the shit out of the yeah. movie. The flamethrower is a very interesting like symbol to me. Mm-hmm. This uh, that and that's what I'm thinking of when I think about it being meticulously constructed. Like there's such a funny scene where you see him training with the flamethrower, and he's like, and "Yeah, it, you know, it's really hot." And the guy's like, "It's a flamethrower." <laughs> uh, to to him having that be his instrument of sort of really screwy heroism, that it's from one of these kind of trashy movies that he made. It's it's the prop, like it's it's pathetic and also triumphant at yeah. the same time. It's really it's it's interesting.
0: And it's the the fact that uh, Emil Hirsch, when he shows up with Jay Sumer, He's like fourteen Trails of McCluskey. Like everyone knows that trashy movie. It's like what a great title for a fake
2: World War Two movie. <laughs> yeah.
3: um, should we talk about Margaret Qualley in this movie and how great she is? So tonight? great, She's so good, so good. <laughs> That's all. <laughs> I, I well, do, she's, do you having, think, she's having a really good year, right? She's great in Fosse Burden, uh, reportedly. I've already said on this podcast. I didn't watch it, so I'm not gonna pretend I watched it. But like, reportedly, really Emmy good nomination. in Fosse. Yeah, really good in that. Really good in this. It's a uh, you know great in the Leftovers, which is a show that Mike Hogan had to convince me to stick with. So like, you know, three cheers for for her.
0: Well, she's a good counterpoint to the idea that it's entirely anti hippie because she is a really appealing character. And then obviously she you know you get to Spawn Ranch and the sequence at Spawn Ranch is so good too. Um, so. T- she kind of turns, um, but I do like she kind of does something to at least let you see the appeal of hippies before you know it gets into the murdering them.
2: Well, she's a siren, right? I mean, pretty much mm-hmm. straight up. Yeah,
0: <laughs> right. And 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 Manson had uh
3: there was a girl I think called Kitty Cat. It's not one to one, but there was like a young, the young, the one of the youngest girls that he would like who was attractive who he would send out to lure people to the ranch. So Ugh. that's like sort of her. Her job, I guess, yeah.
0: I had completely forgotten Lena Dunham was in the movie and then she, when she showed up, that that was a little jarring for all the great casting yeah. in there. I was it not took prepared for Lena Dunham.
3: Yeah.
1: Lena Dunham was in two films at Cannes.
3: Wow, Austin, I mean- Austin Butler is really good as Tex and um, he's an actor that I've been like waiting to see what casting directors have seen in it. Like he keeps showing up and, thing and I'm like, that guy, he's gonna be playing um, Elvis in the upcoming uh, biopic. Oh, right, but, uh, right. But like, yeah, you know, I've, I've seen him in a bunch of projects and I'm like, I don't I, he's the kid's handsome, but I don't get it. And then I saw him in this. I was like, oh, no, he could do something. All right. I'm, I'm interested. So
2: I think Lena's yeah. presence supports my theory that you can map um, the millennials <laughs> to the hippies in this in this thing and Gen X to the silent generation. Yeah, that's, There's something about that, yeah. yeah I guess yeah.
1: so. Yeah. Oh wow. Uh, oh, but yeah, my. no, I, I agree. Join Austin Butler's interesting. So he and Lena Dunham were both in the Dead Don't Die, the Jim Jarmusch movie, and this Lena's part in the Dead Don't Die is like even less than a cameo. It's very short. But yeah, I think Butler has has something intriguing about him. Now, like, can we talk about like the Oscars of it all? Because like I had mentioned, I yeah. think at the top of the show that um, if Sony decides to run Pitt in supporting. I feel like the narrative of not just the mo- of, uh, like in the movie, but also that you know just Pitt in general, like he's never won. I feel like that's a strong thing. I feel like screenplay clearly that seems to be where Tarantino usually lands. But like I was talking to somebody in LA, I think where they were like, well, this is the first Best Picture nominee of the year. Yeah, like for sure, in- yeah. unless mm-hmm. you count Endgame.
2: As or like the farewell,
0: if the
3: farewell gets into like a
2: right. broader right. spot. F- I yeah. think the
0: farewell is worth considering for that too. But yeah, but like this feels like
2: guaranteed. This is a hundred percent best picture nominee, I think. Right, yeah. mm-hmm. especially with the box office. I mean, yeah, just the box a, office. Yeah. Brad, yeah. you got Brad Pitt and Leo in the two, and it's about leads, how, and it's about to how some they extent.
3: Would. Yeah, and Timothy Olyphant. No, I'm just
2: kidding. <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> oh. He's great. The third biggest
3: star
0: in America. <laughs> he's great.
3: <laughs> he I think
2: great. Leo will be nominated for if they run him lead. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and Brad could really win. I think there's a good uh, case
0: for supporting for Brad. Like, I get that people would say it's category fraud, and I think it probably is, in spirit, a two-lead movie, but, like, that supporting nomination wouldn't bother me at all.
2: It's so perfectly set up because he works for, he supports, you know, Leo's character. Like, for some reason, even though it shouldn't be that way, it totally does work that way in your mind, where you're like, that's a supporting role. Mm -hmm. He supports Mm -hmm. Leo's character. He's supportive, right, exactly.
1: Um, So, I don't know, I think it could be interesting, and you know it's 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 hard to kind of call those those things this far out but like we you know I feel like last you know t- two years ago or last year was it we kind of knew black Panther was going to get in there or we or we knew we had a, an intuition that um get out was going to so I don't know i, I don't or I feel Kirk, secure
0: like the summer I mean, oh, like right. Dunkirk. kind of the, the summer model that's closest to this yeah, maybe
1: I feel secure in saying that that movie will get nominated for like at least four Oscars
0: yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's also got, I mean, it's such a big production. Like you think about the production design, the costumes, like it can like, rack up nomination totals in that way, which helps when you're a summer movie trying to kind of stay in there when you're uh, being considered in so many categories. I
2: think, you, I mean, I could see Margot Robbie uh, for supporting. I, I don't know. I mean, I I, I understand the... Um, She's very good. The nonverbal... Ness may make it seem like it's a less significant character, but I think I think she had a ton of presence, like it's a good and she's just so She's just so good I thought good she was extremely she good. Yeah. I thought she
3: was extremely good in it. Um, I would, you know, even Margaret Qualley, like, yep. supporting. Yep. Why not? Bruce Dern. Um, yeah, <laughs> sure. Uh, and one thing I want to mention before I forget is maybe to speak more to Mike's interpretation of this is the number of children of famous people who are in this movie. Yeah. Because like, Margaret Qualley is um, Andy McDowell's kid, obviously. Rumor, Rumor Willis is in this. Um, Maya Hawk. My Hawk is in it. Uh, there was another one, just like a few, like down sort of in the in the bottom of the. You're like, there's a bunch of like daughters of famous people in this, and I was just like, it felt like a intentional uh, casting decision. And the
2: so. daughter of two of my college friends is in it, but they're what? not What? Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, one of the Manson kids.
0: <laughs> or even just seeing Dakota Fanning as Squeaky Frome, like she's not, yeah. of it, but she's been famous her literally her entire. Oh, Harley Quinn, in oh, it. Harley is Quinn Smith. Oh, Harley Quinn Smith. Yeah. Yep. 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 Yeah,
3: I thought I thought Dakota Fanny was so scary, so good. I don't know. Yeah, she Luke was Perry. really good. Luke Perry, last like last film, right? Uh, it's like lovely to see Luke Perry. Nicholas Hammond, one of the Von Trapp children. Uh, Wait, in there. What? So, oh yes, yep. Yeah, Friedrich. Friedrich plays Sam Wanamaker. So what? Uh, that's amazing. Yeah.
0: yeah. I, guys, I like Tarantino movies. <laughs> <laughs> I like how we've settled on, man, Tarantino knows how to cast a movie. Like, the uh, the in- inalienable fact. Um, Zoe Bell showing up for her one scene I loved. She was fantastic oh, in her one scene. I Loved her. I mean, I, I guess the Bruce Lee scene is a whole can of worms, but I enjoyed that scene immensely. And I get that people want to debate it and think it might be problematic, but I liked it a lot.
3: I mean, you know, and it might be. And I think that's a valid interpretation of it. I think it is, it is, it was, I loved the other Bruce Lee scene, which is like, it's true. It like, it's factually accurate that Sharon Tate trained with Bruce Lee to like, For that role that she did, and so to see her watching her movie and then thinking about training with him for her fight, her like dumb little quick fight scene in that movie, I think that's a really beautiful way of like showing her taking something that's so like silly. She plays the klutz, right? Something so silly so seriously. She trained with Bruce Lee for like (laughs) for a Dean Martin comedy. Yeah, this dumb two second fight in a in a Dean Martin comedy, and that is like that's just like a beautiful true grace note about. Sharon Tate that's like uh, nice to have in there so um, you know and maybe that's a reason why that whole scene exists in there Brad Pitt's character is not supposed to come out of that Bruce Lee interaction like looking like the good guy I mean it's true that um, I, I get the reasons why people are upset about that scene and I I think that's valid uh, honestly but
2: but yeah the yeah. point is to show that Brad Pitt was like a, um, a slightly unhinged nut who was very cannon. violent deserved yeah. to
0: get kicked <laughs> off the set of yeah, the Green Hornet right? yeah <laughs> Okay, so that does it for this week's episode. But before we wrap up, I just want to tease a little mini project we'll be doing throughout the month of August as we kind of wait for all these big festival movies to premiere. Um, we're going to do a Little Gold Men Book Club and talk about four books that are going to be the basis of movies that are coming out this fall. We'll have the full list of titles on Twitter on our Little Gold Men feed so you can start catching up. But next week, we will be talking about Little Women, which is going to be the Greta Gerwig movie coming out at Christmas. So if you want to start catching up, uh, go pick up your old copies of Little Women. We'll be talking about that next week. And um, hopefully, it'll be a good way to prepare. Care for the fall season ahead, as Joanna knows, being a smug book reader is never a bad way to be, <laughs> uh, even when it comes to movies. So uh, please yeah. join us. <laughs>
3: And, well, well, we do want to say, like, you don't have to read every book in order to, like, listen to the episode. No, of course um, not. I think, I think we're going to, you know, we're starting with Little Women, which is a lengthy book. So, we're not like, hey, in a week, read Little Women. but um, Read the Wikipedia think,
0: page of Little Women. And then yeah, join but us. I think so, you know,
3: one thing we will want to talk about uh, is whether or not it feels like one should read the book before seeing the movie in each case and stuff like that. So, like, Definitely. making the case for reading the book or not and stuff like that. So, yeah, join us. We'll be talking about it. We'll be spoiling Little Women, which that Friends episode did many Many years ago, so hopefully, you know how uh, it ends.
0: <laughs> All right, so join us next week for that and everything else. Uh, in the meantime, you can find us at vanityfair.com. There's lots of great writing about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood on vf.com right now, so please read it. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at LittleGoldMen Men and on our own. I'm at Katie Rich and Richard Rylos and Joanna Joe wrote this and Mike is at Mike underscore Hogan. He had to run. This week's episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs, and this week's award for the best title for Mike Hogan's upcoming spinoff podcast goes to Mike Hogan.
2: Unapologetically Gen X.